You are listening to the Rising Phoenix podcast. This is a podcast about maternal mental health. Disclaimer, we are not professionals. We are moms who've experienced this ourselves and want to share our stories and stop the stigma. Heads up, some content may be triggering. We are recording from the Stone Sheba podcast studio in Provo, Utah. Check them out on Instagram for more info on our podcast and more. Hey everybody, this is Leslie and I am here with Evie. Hello! And we are FaceTiming. I'm so excited that she has made some time. I know we're all busy moms, so I'm so grateful that you made some time to come and tell us your story. No, absolutely. I'm really, really grateful for the opportunity. Um, And hey, at least it's a break at the end of my day. The clear cutoff time of when I'm off the clock as a mom. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Like, (laughs) no excuses, no interruptions, you know? (laughs) Um, Okay, so kind of tell us a little bit about how you became a mom and what that looks like for you. Were you always wanting to be a mom? Had you had prior depression? Kind of give us a backstory. Okay, so backstory. When I actually got married, I was barely 20 years old. I met my husband three weeks into my freshman year of college. Um, We were that couple. The only thing different that we did was that we dated for a good long while before we got married. Um, He didn't want to marry a teenager. So he said, no child bride is what basically what (laughs) He felt like he was robbing the parade a little. It's like, what? People do this all the time. Yeah. Um, so we had been married for, I had finished my degree. I studied English at BYU-Idaho. And then I did my student teaching um, in a secondary education. So I taught in Utah for my student teaching. And then we actually wound up back in Idaho where I taught for the university for on campus for several years. Um, and I taught freshman writing and I, um, composition. And I actually just finished my last semester with them this in December, but I transitioned to teaching online. Um, so I, I was a work at home mom for over four years. Um, and I decided with the second baby, I need a break. <laughs> so, um, so my postpartum depression occurred during that time frame that I had just transitioned to working online. Um, the first, the first go around, I should say. Um, and then, um, I did struggle with depression beforehand. We were still trying to nail down an actual diagnosis. I was diagnosed with depression when I was barely 19. It was right after my 19th birthday. I got my first prescription for, I believe it was Lexapro. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't stay on it. I didn't want to have to take it. Um, Being the teenager that I still was, I was like, oh, there's a warning that it can make me gain weight. I don't want it. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like, just like, oh, girlfriend. Um, So, (laughs) so there was that. And then, um, while I was still 19, six months after that, they suspected that I might have um, one of the several forms of bipolar disorder um, in that my lows were super low. And then when I had highs, it wasn't like I was engaging in crazy behavior, but I I wouldn't sleep for, for days. Oh, my gosh. Um, and I could get a crap ton of stuff done. And it's not that the highs were bad. It was the lows. Um and so they, but doctors were bouncing back and forth. Is this what this is? Like, so no one really had a clear answer for me. They threw a bunch of um, medications at me. I didn't consistently take them. Uh, and so that was kind of that. Like, I kind of know, okay, this is part of who I am. Like, moving forward, my husband still married me after the diagnosis. I was really afraid that he would have, that he was going to put a big old stop sign on the relationship, but he didn't. Um, he was because he, uh, he, uh, my husband is a huge part of my story in that he has supported me and loved me through a lot of, a lot of hard stuff. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, him, uh, so it's been, um, so I, I had this history with mental health. I, that I should have taken 
more seriously leading up, I did, leading up to my pregnancy, I did the, like, the, the sporadic medication. I had to completely wean off of everything um, because I was having significant health problems. I have polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is PCOS for short. So we knew that having a baby wasn't going to come easy for me. Um, and they really don't like you on several medications that I was on um, sporadically. So I wanted, I had a goal for myself, six months medication free before I even started the hormones to get pregnant. Um, and, and so I had been unmedicated for a, well, over a year um, when my postpartum depression really kicked in full force. Um, so we were living in Idaho um, at the time. And um, pregnancy was okay. I had several things where it's just like more annoyances in terms of you're on modified bed rest now. Okay, now you're not on modified bed rest. Like um, I found out the gender of my baby in the emergency room because I had a cyst first while I was pregnant. Um, things like that where it's like not ideal. Not not ideal. And I and at the time I was working two jobs. I was working as um, a marketing assistant, and then I was also uh, teaching on campus three three nine credits, and then I was also in graduate school. So mm-hmm. I was the perfect storm. It was it was coming. I was young and naive. I, I was twenty. I turned twenty four while I was pregnant, mm-hmm. um, and then. Right. I had this delivery that was slightly traumatic, which can oftentimes be a, an, an additional thing that can trigger, you know, hi, you know, heightens your, your chances of um, experiencing postpartum depression, anxiety, et cetera. Um, and I had a significant amount of blood loss, but not to the point where I needed a transfusion during my birth. So my, my iron levels were down, my B12 was down, which... Oh, also, like, not going to help a mental health situation. No. So, um, we get to that point, and, you know, I, I blame the sleeplessness and the anxiety and depression all on, you know, baby blues. Minimize it. Baby blues, I'm mm-hmm. here, like, I want to show up, like, I'm, I get one shot at being a first-time mother, I'm going to do this perfectly, the pressure I feel is normal, the, the sadness I feel is normal, this is just... I'm having a hard time adjusting to being a mom. Um, so I minimized greatly. Um, and then at five weeks, so, the, I mean, the symptoms were already occurring. From about, I'd say, week three. It was right after my mother-in-law left. Um, and there was a morning where I just laid face down on the floor and just cried. Like, I don't know how long. I mean, time blurred for me. I was taking care of the baby, but... I, and, it, like, he was taken care of, but I, it was like I was going through the motions. I wasn't I wasn't fully there. Um, and then uh, when I was almost five weeks postpartum, my husband, the company that he was working for that we assumed was a stable job, they actually went under. Um, or at least, I don't even know if they're still around, but they laid off 90% of their employees uh, on that day. Um, and so... I, he, he called me with no warning. He's like, sweetheart, I'm, I'm coming home. Uh, I got laid off. I'm like, say what now? It, it was just like, I remember rocking my baby and trying to breastfeed him. And my milk supply was already crappy. <laughs> and I was trying and trying and trying. And then I just remember holding him and looking at his face and rocking him in his room. I can even like, see how the light filtered in through the room. And I just held him and I cried. I cried for the entire 45 minutes it took for my husband to get home. And then I decided once he walked in the door, it was time to shut it off and be strong and suck it up. And I sucked. I I did. I sucked it up. And I, that is not the healthy way to cope when you're struggling yourself. But I felt this need to be strong for him. And as a direct consequence, um, I masked my depression extremely, extremely well. Uh, and we ended up saying, you know what, there's nothing left for us here in Idaho. BYU-Idaho had allowed me at that point to transition to teaching online for them. So what was the point? So we, all of our families based in California, 
um, and we moved home. And that really was, honestly, I think the fact that I feel like it was like this divine intervention that as horrible as it was to lose our job, it's what got us back to California. And had I not been there, I hate thinking about what the consequences may have been. Um, because that's where my support system was. Um, and so, in terms so how of old was stage, your, how old was your baby when you moved to California? Eight, eight weeks old. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah, the, within 24 hours of my husband saying, um, I got laid off cause we had already planned to go home at eight weeks to, um, we, we are Latter-day Saints. So we had planned to go to California to bless our baby around family, which is just it for, for those who are not familiar, it's where basically a special prayer is given and family tends to gather for it, for, for a newborn baby. So we, we had planned to go home for, to California for that. I left Idaho for that trip knowing there's a good chance that if I come back, it'll be to pack my house and come back here. And um, that's exactly what happened. Uh, so we, we went out. I, I was spent maybe two days after that trip in Idaho and it was to pack up my office on campus and pack up as much as I could in my house. And then I got back on the plane and flew back to California with my son. Um, and we stayed there and didn't have a place to live. We moved back to California without a job prospect. I mean, we, we did know like we always have a safe place to land with both of the parents. We really, really needed them. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to find us a place to live and just trust that this is going to work out. And it did. Thank gosh, again, divine intervention for sure. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know how the universe pulled that off, but that's a lot of it, stress. It was it was a ton of stress and it was really, <laughs> really overwhelming, especially for, you know, this twenty four year old new mom. Um And you hadn't and told I, anybody the other feelings of postpartum at all. No, no. And I remember like thinking, oh, I wonder if it's normal to not be able to go back to sleep after you feed your baby every three hours in the middle of the night. And I just thought, oh, well, I, I've always struggled with, you know, not sleeping, so it's fine. Um, again, minimizing. Uh, yeah. And so we moved back there and for, I really didn't see... I did start seeing a doctor who got me going to get blood infusions. And she's the one that officially said between her and my mom and my husband, they're like treating this is just, you know, treating this is just like a bout of depression isn't working. This is something deeper. Um, and that's when she referred me out to my psychiatrist who then really pulled a flag and said, hold up, this is, this is bad. It's not normal to have a plan for your suicide. Like that's like, hold up. And, and I, um, by the time I got to her, it was about six months. I was six months postpartum and I'd been struggling from about three weeks onward. So it'd been a long time. And I went, I would call it going down the rabbit hole. Cause it really was just like Evie's trip to crazy town. <laughs> Cause it was just, I was suffering. Um, what were, like, I, the thoughts that you felt the most often? Just that, like, and what what brought you to the point of feeling like you could take your own life? Like, what? It was it was just, I can't do this. I'm not equipped to do this. Yeah. I can't do this. It was just, and then I was feeling rage, that, which I didn't know was a symptom. I mean, and it was just, like, violent inner rage and I wasn't taking it out on anyone but I was feeling it I found myself quick to anger quick to yelling I mean like really yelling um and I remember crying a lot like I thought it was normal to cry once a day every day I I didn't know I didn't know that it was not normal not normal to fall apart every day um and thank gosh, my parents only lived about a mile and a half up the road. Mm. So my mom, in a lot of ways, um, even from the time we moved there, she was like, she didn't have a job at the time. And she really made me her job. <laughs> and she loved being around a grandson. And so um, she would come and take care of my son. Because when I get those infusions, it'd be six, uh, four to six hours, depending on how fast it'd be, once a week. Um, 
every week for six months. So I would go and I would sleep and get my vitamins. And honestly, it again, I feel like that hit it because I would pass out. Yeah. Um, and I think, oh, well, I'm just like, relax. It's fine. They're giving me Benadryl. But the only way that I was sleeping was with medicine medicine aiding me and it was just that once a week and so um I I just felt I don't know I just I, I really remember feelings of inadequacy um and a severe lack of confidence in myself um and just like quick to sadness and quick to anger mm-hmm. uh beyond beyond rational levels and so I when I started getting suicidal I I started thinking of you know well my son I have to do this now while my son is still young enough that he won't remember it yeah um things things like that where it's just like oh you've got to be kidding me um just things I I mean it was very much I I call it suicide logic because I think when you're in that state of mind, your logic is so skewed. Um, you see some things very clearly, but other things, it's just like the consequences, you only think about them to a point. You think that you're preserving those around you by taking your own life. You don't really think about, well, what would that look like? Um, it's so, so crazy, but, though, because in those moments, it's so your truth like it's so yes like I was seven months old when my dad committed suicide and I promise he felt like he was doing me a favor you know like no one in their right mind does something like that thinking it's gonna like you know like I just it's so crazy and then when I experienced postpartum and I felt that way like my son is better off without me he's so young and then I remember I'm like I was so young and it affects me my entire life like yes but it's so crazy when you're in that moment like you just it's your truth and there is nothing that can talk you out of it and you don't recognize you're in it that deep until you're out of it almost right like oh tell me go ahead yeah no absolutely I I didn't I really think that when I reflect back I was still in it even like I know after one year it's not they say it's not considered postpartum depression but I never really exited fully that mindset until my son was about two years old so it took it took me a long time to like really recover and reclaim my motherhood so I think Mm. you're absolutely right on that it's it's a hard thing to come back from so when you went to the psychiatrist what happened from there did he give you medication did you go back all the time did you keep up with it so she yes uh, I did I she gave me a mood stabilizer, um, which we ended up, she actually gave me two initially because she was like, we need to get you stabilized. Uh, because I was, I did start hallucinating, which, which was postpartum psychosis. It's actually pretty rare. It's like one in one or two women out of a thousand, I think is the statistic. You'll have to fact check me on that, but, mm. Super um, rare. it's, it, it's rare. Um, but again, I let myself sink deeper and deeper and deeper until that was triggered um so I was hallucinating horrible things like that I was pregnant and I was losing a pregnancy which I did experience miscarriage you know several years after that but it was so real in that moment to the point where I'm calling my husband saying like I'm having a miscarriage like I really I could see I could see the blood on my hands but it wasn't like and then when I'm like when I'm coming out of it I realized there's nothing on my hands oh my gosh and I thought I was I at the time, I was like, I'm a liar. I'm a liar. Why would I lie about such a horrible thing? But it was just, I wasn't, and, and even still, it makes me feel horrible thinking, like, that my husband got that call. But, I mean, to me, in that moment, it was so real. And I was, and then really what ended up happening, me knowing that I was in psychosis, was um, seeing, seeing someone standing in our room that wasn't there. And I was like, and we're done. <laughs> Um, I, I was like, Mm-mm, nope. Uh, so, so I, I started disclosing this stuff to the psychiatrist because by this point she, I'd seen, been seen her twice a week, every week for about a month, about as close 
it was pretty much outpatient care, but it was as close as we could get without putting me in a facility. Um, and honestly, I, I would love to ask my husband and my mom why they didn't. I think it's because they felt like they had me. And truth be told, like they, I do feel like they had me. Yeah. Um, but I do want to stress that, like a lot of times, like it's not a taboo thing to go to the hospital if you need it, um, or an inpatient facility if you need it. It's better you in an inpatient facility than you taking your life. One hundred percent. So I'm, I'm definitely not against it, but that's just not the path that we took. So my therapist had me on Seroquel, Lamotrigine, Zoloft, and then gave me a rescue medication if I had a panic attack, um, which was Klonopin. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a lot. And we dialed me all the way up to um, 800 milligrams of Seroquel, which is enough to basically, like, tranquilize a freaking rhinoceros. I mean, it was a lot of medication. Um, And I would take that, and it would knock me out at night. And it got me stabilized. And then we immediately, as soon as I was stabilized, we let me stay stable for about, I don't know, a month. But we already were talking about, okay, how are we going to work this down? Because 800 milligrams of that um, is just... It's a lot. Most people can stabilize with 100, but I was taking 800, um, and I just, I needed it, and I, I still, to this day, so my, part of my postpartum plan for this second baby, I, I haven't explained that yet, so I'll, I'll back, back, I had a baby seven months ago. We didn't know if we were, we, we knew we wanted to have another baby, but we placed a huge caveat on it that we would not have another baby unless I was completely mentally stable and we had an ironclad postpartum plan. And how Um, far apart are your babies? So Oliver was just over four when I had Eleanor. Um, And so, so yeah, they're about four, they're a little over four years apart. Um, So you're starting to wean off of the medications, come up with a plan. Yep, and so we so we worked me back down to a sustainable amount, and I stayed on Seroquel and Zoloft, or my, my two magic pills is what we call them, and I stayed on them all the way up until we were ready to start trying for number two, um, during which point I leaned off of them again, but it was like with severe, like, talking to my psychiatrist once a week, and... Um, making sure that I was checking in with my parents and talking to my husband and saying, hey, are you noticing anything? Uh, Because a lot of times I just don't see my symptoms, Mm -hmm. but those who are around me most, most definitely do. Um, Where, you know, if I'm cleaning at 2 a.m., I'm probably manic. I'm probably not okay. (laughs) And so my husband, my husband will call me out versus I'm thinking, oh, great, I'm actually cleaning and I want to be cleaning. Like, when does this happen? So I do need to be <laughs> called out sometimes. So so I did stay on them. Um, and, you know, it was really hard for me to admit. I only started really feeling comfortable telling people that I w- I'm on medications um, to up until right before this pregnancy uh, or this last pregnancy that I had. Um just because it felt so shameful to me. I was ashamed. Um, and I, I didn't have a problem. I did my, honestly, in retrospect, I was still in it. I did my graduate thesis project on interviewing women who had experienced similar things to me. And that is when I realized there's a huge stigma around this because many of them, most of them ask to be anonymous. Um, and it just, which, which, you know what, like, you do you at the pace that you need to do you. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's therapeutic oh, even just to tell it, even if you are anonymous. So Absolutely. And, you know, the conversations that I had with these women, I, let's see, my son was a year and a half. Was he a year and a half? Yeah, he was a year and a half when I did my graduate thesis project. And um, hearing their stories, I just was... Like, okay, we, here we are, we were all different ages, we were all different backgrounds, we, it, postpartum depression, anxiety, postpartum psychosis, it does not discriminate. Mm -hmm. It can happen to anyone at any age, 
Um, and yes, there are, there are risk factors, but I most of the women that I found were women that I knew already when I did a call for it and said, you know, posted on social media saying, I need to find 10 women who are willing to tell me their story. And um, it was shocking how many people said, I had that. I experienced that. Um, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, you've been around me for the last several years. How did I not see it? Um, and I don't think that people realize that um, that a lot of times we don't see it in the, in, even in the people that we're closest to as friends. And we just need to keep those lines of communication open so that people can feel like they can disclose mm-hmm. to you. Um, because even in the time since I've since I've become comfortable with telling my story, because even up until I really wasn't talking about my story very much. I, I told it for my project and then I shut the door on it. I didn't broadcast it. Um, it was just like, oh yeah, I have this. And even though I was minimizing it, I didn't tell people about the psychosis. Um, I didn't tell them about the amount of meds I was on. Um, it wasn't until I was pregnant with my daughter and it was after my miscarriage even that I felt like I could start talking about it. Um, and I, as I did, I found myself healing. Just like you said, like sometimes just talking about it helps. Um, and because I was having a positive experience with pregnancy and I was having a positive experience, you know, creating this, you know, almost like a sisterhood of women, like it's just a feeling of I, there are others around me who have my back. Like even if worst case scenario occurs again, I have a support system. It's going to be okay. We have a plan. Um, and so even though, you know, I kind of, I kind of suspected that, you know, it, it could happen again. And to some degree it did, it did not get nearly as severe because we had a plan. Um, and it caught me quickly. Um, I you know it's just, it's, uh, it's something that I, I think, you know, as we, as we continue the conversation around postpartum depression, psychosis, anxiety, we will help destigmatize that and help others feel like they can talk about it. Because for me, there were only a couple people that really knew the full story in my life. Um, being, I guess I should say several. My, my mom and my husband and my best friend knew the full story, um, knew about the suicidal thoughts, um, Otherwise, I hid it from everybody else. Mm-hmm. So, so it's it's something definitely that you know as I as I've grown and healed, I, I do want people to know this story so that they can know what to look for in themselves. Um, what would you say like to know that within themselves? Like because it's like we've both said like you kind of don't even realize it until it's almost too late. But I do feel like there is some part in the beginning where you have that conscious moment of, wait a minute. So like that moment before you brush it off, what would you say like for you and maybe other moms out there, what would you say would be something to look for? Honestly, not being able to sleep is, was some, is a really common thread, especially for the anxiety people. Um, and then depression wise, the first second that you have a violent thought, mm-hmm. that first time, just the, the blip, it's not even a fully thought out thought. It's almost like a blip where it enters your head and leaves and you're like, Ooh, you kind of like, are like, huh, I don't know how I feel about that. But then you just move on with your day. Um, and so that, that's when you should say, you know what? It's worth mentioning. It's worth mentioning to my doctor. Um, and, you know, we, we take these, you know, you do take a, a, I think it's law, I think, or at least most of these do it, where you take an evaluation and you go on for your six-week postpartum checkup. But um, really, postpartum depression with that, you, you need to be checking yourself as soon as two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, even before you make it to your doctor at six weeks, um, because your hormones you know, our hormones go crazy. It's not very fair at all. Um, and even if you, if you're an adoptive parent, um, 
you know, it doesn't matter. You're you're still sleep as sleep deprived as the rest of us. Oh, <laughs> and I it's know. still this very fresh thing in it and it can happen to adoptive parents as well. So it's just something that, you know, if you if it's even just a slight question, uh, maybe. Or if you know that you do have a history, talk about it before it hits because there are things that can be done if you're open and honest with yourself and with your doctor, um, even before you have your baby. Uh, so just, you know, it's good to be willing to examine yourself and self-check from the get-go. Uh, we are making huge strides in teaching moms to do this, um, which is fantastic. But I do think every mom should be aware of what, what are the potential signs that I should be looking for. So like sleeplessness, anxiety, rage, um, not feeling like a spark of joy when you're putting on a tiny onesie or like, you know, like yeah. seeing a cute foot. Like if you're not, if you're feeling just very, very apathetic, that is, that can be an indicator. Um, and, and that's, you know, if you, I think that if we all knew like the base, the base symptoms, it's something that we can look for in ourselves and, and in those women that we are closest to, um, as we see them, um, have babies and either enter into motherhood or have another baby. Cause a lot of times, again, it, it, it can happen. If you didn't have it with your first, it can happen with your second, third, mm-hmm. so forth. So, um, I think it's I, so important to do that too. Like as moms oh, yeah. that have experienced it, like it's a responsibility to look out 100%. for other moms. Like even the random mom in the store, when I like just the other day, I was at the grocery store and there was a mom and I could tell that she was just done. You know, and she had like a three month old and then like a five year old running around. And I could just see the way that she looked at her baby. And I was like, I know that look. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, you know. Yes. And so I just said something super nice to her. It wasn't like I was like, oh, you have postpartum. Do you know that? Are you, you know, it wasn't even that. It was just like, <laughs> yeah. you give some, you give another mom that look. You're like, I know, I've got you. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, yeah, and, and even even as much as someone being like, "Hey, you're doing a good job." Yes. Like, yeah. Like that is such. It can make such a difference to someone that's in the trenches. You know, oh, it, yeah. it's just just giving that simple encouragement. Like, hey, you're doing it. It's you're you're doing a great job. Waking up every day with your kids, if you're feeding them. You're at the grocery store. Yeah. You got it. Grocery store, like. On you yet. made it Let to the checkout. <laughs> yes. And so it's just like, you know, we, um, yeah, because it could, yeah, absolutely. It's just, you know, the everyday things and checking in on each other. Um, and yeah, I do feel a moral responsibility to check on my friends. And I found that since I've gone through this, I'm definitely more diligent in checking in with my friends. Um, towards the end of their pregnancies and then in the several months following um, so that people know that, hey, I, you can always talk to me about mom stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I make sure, and, and that's a huge reason why um, why I, I actually started, I, I used to blog, I stopped when I had postpartum depression and then after I did my graduate thesis, I thought I need to keep writing. This is healing me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started up like really took my Instagram seriously and started like talking about my, my stories and, and my captions. And, um, because I've done that, I've had so many women reach out to me and just say, Hey, you know, I have this too. Like I'm, I'm experiencing this too. And I would much rather have one of my friends reach out and say, Hey, I'm hurting. Um, I know you've talked about this. I know that you've hurt before too. And for me to be able to say, I, I'm here, I'm listening. Can I come clean your house? Can I come hold your baby? Do you need me to take you to lunch? Do you want a distraction? Do you need me to take you to the doctor? Um, things like that. I'd much rather have that conversation than receive a phone call saying your friend has passed as a result of postpartum depression. And so I feel very deep moral responsibility to try to reach as many women as I can to, um, to, to be at least, you know, one barrier to, to something that could be really horrendous and, and devastating. Um, and so, you know, when, so I just, I, I urge 
any anyone that's listening um, to if if you're even considering pregnancy or you know someone considering pregnancy, like as soon as they tell you, like be ready to you know do research and be prepared to just like watch for that in them, and then towards the end of the pregnancy, tell them what the signs are. Um, and it, you know, I I've watched for it in my sister-in-law. Um, she had a baby about six months before me. She didn't have that issue. It was great. I would ra- I, it's fantastic here when a mom is doing well. But for every mom that you're checking on, you know, for you know, there's going to be another that's saying I'm I'm, I'm struggling. Um, and it's better to be that barrier where you say, "Hey, do you need me? I'm here." Um, and the moms that I, I can't reach, sometimes I just, you know, I, you know, you read about in the media moms who died by suicide, and I just think, I'm sorry we couldn't reach you. Like I'm sorry that we didn't reach you fast enough. And I, my heart just aches for them and their families. Um, and I think that's why it's so important to have things like your podcast and like um, PSI and um, just overall awareness. That we're that way we can all be in this boat together and, and help each other, um, because we have you know we may we may not be able to you know we can't take on we can't carry each other's happiness boxes, um, but we can help lighten the load in listening to each other, hmm. um, and that's I think it's a huge step in our society. I agree. And I feel so strong about being vulnerable. Like I'm listening to um, Daring Greatly. Daring Greatly yes. by Renee Brown. Yes. Oh my gosh. And yes. she's talking about that. She's like, vulnerability is like what can change the world, you know? And it's yes. it's hard to be vulnerable sometimes, especially when you're hurting that bad. But, you know, mostly when you come out of it, when, you, when you're where we're at, when you're, yeah. you know, on yeah. the on the outskirts of it or in treatment for it or, you know, in a better stage where it's like, it's a, if it's safe for you, if it's, it's, if it's a safe space for you to be vulnerable and doesn't trigger you or cause you to go back into a bad space, you know, you have to self-evaluate because even us doing this podcast, you know, as a host, it's like we listen to the stories and then we edit them again and hear them again and again. And it's, there's been times where I've had to just walk away for a minute or yeah. have Lindsay edit them for me because it's like we do want Absolutely. to support other moms, but we also have to realize you have to be in a good space to do that, to show up for other Absolutely. moms. It's crazy. Like I thought, oh, it's going to be so healing to do all this. But it's like, okay, it's also really hard sometimes, you know? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I, I kind of have to, before I do, you know, before I, I, I t- do interviews or I talk about it, a lot of times I have to like gut check myself and, and say, am I capable of this right now? Um, and luckily the, the answer has consistently been yes, even through uh, having my daughter and experiencing those feelings come up again. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to to be able to continue talking about it and not feel like I'm trapped because for me it was very much a feeling of feeling um, trapped and um, sometimes I do re-trigger and I and I have to I do acknowledge I feel in a lot of ways postpartum depression robbed me in my first year of motherhood in a lot of ways um, I I I have I have memories of it and thank gosh that I'm one of those moms where I'm constantly taking pictures because it helps me remember like the really happy times and the videos. And I'm like, okay, I was, I did have happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did have joy and I, I did think he was, he, you know, my son to this day, he is, he is my world. It is one of my friends. She, um, she refers to the love you feel as a mother as gravity. It's like a gravity. It's a gravity force that pulls you towards these children, and and I, I never want my son to hear that I struggle with this and do feel love. I think that love and depression can coincide. Absolutely. Yeah. It's when, it's um, 
so don't, I, don't, I think that a lot of people confuse that. But you can feel depressed and feel love at the same time. But having that first year feeling like that was taken from me, it's traumatic. It's it's still it's a trauma that I've had to work actively work on healing and forgiving myself because I in a lot of ways I blamed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do have to treat it as a trauma. And like any trauma, you can have post-traumatic stress disorder related with it as well, which is a whole other issue that we can, we can experience as moms and, you know, you know, anything can re-trigger, you know, anything can trigger PTSD a lot of times, but you have to be aware of what your triggers are. And if you know that talking about it, it's going to trigger you, there's nothing wrong in saying, Hey, I am feeling especially vulnerable to these prior tendencies. I need to take a sec or I can't talk about this right now. But I'm, you know, I'm here. I can listen, you know, and you can, sometimes you can just listen without having to tell your story. Or sometimes you can tell your story without being able to listen. You just have to be very, you know, it calls for an awareness of yourself um, that takes time to build. It's Mm -hmm. not something that is going to come with motherhood. You have to kind of gut check yourself consistently. So probably, I don't know when that's going to end, if it will ever end for me. I'm only, let's see, I've only been a mom for nearly five years, and I'm still constantly gut-checking myself. Can I talk about this? Can I do this? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm very, very blessed that I had the funds, well, and my parents even stepped in to help with this. I'll be completely real with that, because therapy can be really expensive, and in terms of coverage, it's not always covered, which can get me on a whole other oh, amen, whole other time. soapbox. Um, but but I did. I'm very very blessed that I had I, that we were able to afford my medications and afford my therapy because I know that that in many ways is a privilege. Um. So, but but you know you can there are there are other outlets there are other um, things. That, I recently um, did uh, suicide prevention training, and there are so many different um, different lines that you can call and different resources that you can reach out to. There's so um, many support groups. I did not even know. Yes. Like local, so free. Local, free And people groups. go. And, and people go because we need this. Yes. Um, so when I moved up here uh, from California, away from my therapist, she encouraged me. She said, "Hey, just look up NAMI, N-A-M-I. It's they have support groups across the United States, um, and there there are. I, I haven't gone to one locally now that we reside in Utah, but but I know I know where my resources are if mm-hmm. I need them. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't know what your re- local resources are, most of your OBG most OBGYNs are aware that this is an issue and at least have a pamphlet. If you can even just start with calling the number that they hand to you, that is a start. Um, and there's no shame in uh, talking with your doctor prior to having a baby saying, Hey, like I, you know, I don't know if this will happen to me. What, what's your care like if this happens to me? Yeah. What, what are the steps there? Um, which is something I didn't do before my son, but my um, OBGYN was very much aware of it with my pregnancy with my daughter and she was checking me at every single appointment awesome yeah she was she was diligent and she even prescribed me zoloft so we put me back on the zoloft two months before my daughter was even born just as a way you know as a you know as a fail safe just just in case here's the stability and i'm still on it um i'm seven months postpartum and i'm on that and um, because I did start experiencing symptoms of not being able to sleep, um, and we, when I had my daughter, we had, you know, we, we did get have a layoff that occurred when my son was five weeks old. But on the flip side, before we had my daughter, eight weeks before she was born, we were part of another mass layoff. So we, um, and that that's where they uh, they got rid of a hundred employees out of five hundred that layoff so it was very much just like crappy chances yeah. just like 
freak, freak thing. Um, but my doctor was aware of it. And she said, hey, you know, it was at that appointment my husband showed up because now his schedule is cleared. She was like, uh, it's time for us to start talking preventative. Um, and so and I, I was on that. The hospital was fantastic. They were great about being supportive of me, taking that and administering that to me, recording out my chart. I had two nurses talk to me, being like, hey, how you feeling, honey? Like, just like emotionally, how you feeling? Because it was on my chart. I was there, and then they sent a social worker to my room the day after I had my daughter. And she said, hey, like, how are you feeling? Anyone that indicates that they have this issue, you know, a prior issue with this, we, we just come to the rooms and let you know your resources. So we are getting better, and um, I had my daughter at an Intermountain Hospital, and I guess that that is becoming more of a thing, and they are advocating um, to have that for all mothers, which I think that would be fantastic if we could have an intersection for where a social worker went to every single freaking room of a woman that had just had a baby. Amen. Um, if we could just have that, someone, because when she stepped in, I just was like, you're my, you're a safe place for me, where if I needed this, we were there, and she, and she was just, you know, floored that I knew my options, and she was floored that I had this research, but I'm like, I know that what I've experienced and the therapy that I've received and the support system I have is a privilege, but I'm so glad that you're here for the women that don't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was like a single mom in the room next to me, and I said, "Are you gonna? Are you able to visit her?" And they're like, "The hospital doesn't fund it." And I'm just like, "I haven't seen a single visitor walk into a room, not one." And I just, you know, it, it, even in that moment where I'm like really hurt, just had a baby, like raw, I just was thinking, "We need this in every single." Every single room, every every mother needs that interception. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that answers, <laughs> but uh, that's kind of that was that was my experience with it. Well, I know I love that. I think, and the question we always ask in the end, and I'll ask, but I feel like you just did the best job ever of answering it. But <laughs> what would you tell yourself, like you know, the first time you feel that thought, like? What is the most important thing to you to tell yourself on that day, on that terrible day when you're feeling those suicidal thoughts or whatever? Like, what would you go back and tell yourself now that you know now? Like, what's one simple thing that you would shake yourself and say, hey, like this? You know what I mean? Um, you know, that's a really, really great question. You know, there's a lot of different, um, my, my psychiatrist, she taught me several mantras um, in, in my healing. And if I could tell myself, and um, like, you are needed. You are here in this moment. You are needed. Um, be kind to yourself. Be graceful with yourself. Um, if you have a higher power, the whole concept of let go, let God, like some days, there were some days where I was just like, literally whispering under my breath, let go, let God, let go, let God, and, and just to make myself not act on impulses that were there, very much there. Um, and I wish, I wish I would have, I, I wish I could have had someone just like, you know, had I not been so numb, if I could have grabbed myself and known that the numb me would have heard the me now saying, we're here, you're loved, please stay. Choose right now to stay. Um, I feel like that would have, honestly, I probably would have crumbled in my own arms. But but I think that, you know, um, that, that feeling of love, however you're able to convey it to yourself, I wish I wish I could have felt that self-love that I have for myself here today. Yeah. I love that so much. That is one of my favorite things that I've had from that question because overall it's so much of maternal mental health results in guilt and shame and not loving yourself, you know? So I really feel like that is such a beautiful message to give. And yeah, I mean, I could not have said that better. So yeah. Thank you you so much for saying that. Is there anything else you want to share? Uh, No, no, that I I feel like 
we mostly covered it other than just, you know, one final push. If, if there's even a question in your mind, please seek help. Like, I feel like I, if I could tattoo that on my forehead, like, you need help, get it. Maybe I'll put it on the back of my car on a sticker. That's what um, I'm going to title your podcast. There we go. <laughs> I'm so serious, find, too. Find a freaking therapist. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, that's, that's honestly... Um, I know that if, if there's anyone listening, I, I know that I can speak for you and say that you're always there to listen if someone needs, you know, someone to catch them. I, I know that there are other women out there in this community because we really do become a community. Um, I, I'm happy to hear if someone's listening to this, but if you need someone to message or talk to, um, I'm here. And, you know, don't be afraid to reach out. Mm-hmm. I agree. And we are, it's, we have such an incredible community. I am so grateful that we have connected and I feel like this isn't going to be the last of us talking with you. So. <laughs> You're so sweet. Well, I, I greatly enjoyed it and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I, I am so grateful that there are podcasts out there and women out there like you that are talking about this. Yeah, thank you. There were we wouldn't we couldn't do it without women like you that are willing to be vulnerable and share. So, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Rising Phoenix podcast. If you feel like you can relate and would be open to share your story with us, please email us at risingphoenixpodcast@gmail.com. For more information on local and national resources for pregnancy and postpartum health, visit www.postpartum.net or www.psiutah.org. We are recording from the Stone Sheba Podcast Studio in Provo, Utah. Check them out on Instagram for more info on our podcast and others. Thanks for listening.